Well, welcome back to week two of our new series called Explore God. Uh, This is both a series and a website and a future ministry opportunity. The website is exploregod.com. Every question you can think of, plus about 10,000 more, are there, and they have rational, biblical answers to those questions. I think it'll be a huge benefit to you. Um, I am excited about this particular question because it's one that I've never preached before or taught before in a public setting like this. This is a lecture in one of the seminary classes that I teach for Liberty University, and it's on the idea that God exists, but how do we know He exists? And I'm a, I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm a science nerd. Any other science nerds in the room? Yeah, good. We can admit a few people here. Well, I'm such a nerd that yesterday we went and spent some time at the Museum of Natural Science, all right? We went to Houston and we bought some things. Um, I, again, I'm a, I'm a nerd. So I got me a beaker that gives the chemical formula for caffeine. And uh, thank you for turning the lights on. And I filled it up with my favorite beverage. Now I know how to make it. Thank you, Houston Museum of Natural Science. I know how to make a ca- uh, caffeine. Mm. Also have Newton's Cradle here. All right, I always wanted one of these on my desk. My daughter Whitney actually bought this. I don't know if I'll get to put it on my desk, but every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Love it, love it. Uh, I, I, I gotta admit, I get all giddy when I go to places like that. I don't know if you spend a lot of time at Smithsonian's, but we've been there a handful of times. I just love it. And when I was going through Texas A&M University in the early 90s, I was getting a degree in biology and chemistry, and my faith grew by leaps and bounds. It wasn't stifled. I heard somebody gave me a testimony earlier about somebody who's in college right now, and they're getting challenged by agnostic, atheistic uh, professors. And there is a special virulent form, I call it neo-atheism, which they are trying to get even the talk of God out of America's conscience and the consciousness of humans on this planet, just the idea of don't even, don't, don't even talk about it. Matter of fact, if somebody does talk about God, you jam it down their throats that they have no proof and has no place in the conversation. And so we see that. But in my college experience, I, st- I wasn't coming into college. I wasn't a believer. I got introduced to Jesus Christ, fell in love with him and who he is and what he's done began a relationship with him that means more to me than anything else. And so all those biochemistry, biophysics, microbiology, cell biology, physical chemistry, all those organic chem class, they they grew my mind to love God and to see him through the telescope and through the microscope. And and I hope to do that for you today because we're going to answer this second huge question. Does God exist? Now, if I were to ask you that, does God exist? You're here this Sunday morning. I would hope that it'd be nearly 100%. Um, Actually, I don't know that I'd hope that. I asked you last week to bring a friend, maybe somebody who's seeking, and they don't really have an answer to that, and most of the world doesn't have an answer to that. Latest poll said that 80% of America says God exists, 80%. I don't really want to talk about the question, does God exist? do you believe God exists? I want to talk about the question, how do you know God exists? This is an equipping series. I want to equip you with some answers, something you can memorize, something you can share at a coffee shop, a water cooler, 
a Christmas celebration, you can invite a friend out for lunch who you know is, is um, agnostic, atheistic. Maybe they've got huge questions, and you can have some answers. Um, the New Testament book of Peter says that you need to be ready to give an answer for what you believe, right? Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give reason for the hope that you have, 1 Peter 3.15. So against this neo-atheism that's intent on driving God from the public consciousness, atheistic evangelists like Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, well-known authors written, they've written bestsellers like God is Not Great, The God Delusion, Letters to a Christian Nation. What do you say? How do you respond to such ferocious attacks on the existence of God? Now, I'm not expecting everybody in here to go toe-to-toe with a neo-atheist who's ferociously attacking the belief of God in God, but I am asking you to take a step of faith in learning here today to have an answer to a friend, to maybe somebody who's a skeptic and they're able and willing to talk with you. Jesus said, isn't it comforting to know that Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Isn't that comforting? It's comforting to me. So as believers, we don't check our brains at the door. And this is in really the connotation that Christians, this is addressing one of the connotations that Christians have in our culture that we are simple-minded, uneducated, easily duped, given to superstition, but there are some very good intellectual reasons to believe that God exists. And remember, some of the greatest thinkers that this world has ever known have been believers, right? Galileo, Copernicus, Isaac Newton, Kepler, Descartes, Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, Ben Carson, Francis Collins. And in a church like this, we as a people of grace, we are a community of grace, farming grace in a culture here. We are cultural farmers, farming grace. And if we're going to farm it, we have to sow seeds of grace. And that seed often looks like dialogue, a culture of dialogue. So let me say this at the beginning. If you've got questions, we will find some answers. We will research those answers if we don't already have them. And we want to talk with you. We're not afraid of your questions. God's not afraid of your questions. And Beaumont's First Baptist Church is not afraid to answer questions either. So ask us. I'll stick around after this service, any service, to talk with you about your questions. All right? So I'm a nerd, a science nerd, and I get all giddy. As a matter of fact, we were, I don't know if you've been to Museum of Natural Science, but they have an Egyptian uh, exhibit. Oh, I loved it. I wanted to read everything, and um, I, got, I got, a little, got a little too excited uh, one of the funniest things, Audrey, my youngest child, was we had three mummies there, and, and uh, I walked up to one of the mummies, and she's all, you know, bug-eyed, looking at this, what, 2,000, 3,000-year-old mummy. She, wow. And I said, Audrey, I think it just moved. And she's like, what? Yeah, I tapped the glass, and it moved. I said, here, tap the glass. She went up to tap the glass, and I, I gigged her. I went, <laughs> She jumped over the mummy, ran out, screamed, no. But we did, they did call the security guards on us because we were laughing so hard. She started beating me up. Daddy, never do that again. And of course, I had to go to the gift shop. And again, I got giddy to get my beaker and my Newton's cradle. All right. So today, I'm going to get a little nerdy on you. I will tell you that my target audience 
is about a 10-year-old. All right, I'm shooting for, for Trinity there, my 10-year-old, so that I could give her something to say to her friends as a fifth grader, right? And so if you think I'm going to use a bunch of big words, and matter of fact, in lectures on this, I do use a ton of big words. I use words like the cosmological argument, the ontological argument, the teleological argument, the moral or axiological argument. Uh, I might mention those words, but I'm going to use words that others can understand if you're not a science nerd like me. So what would you say if you were asked how you know God exists? Let me give you the answers right now. It's the evidence outside and inside, external evidence and internal evidence. External evidence is the word creation. Say that with me, creation. Internal evidence is the word conscience. Say that with me, conscience. So we're going to study creation and we're going to study conscience. We're going to look at the telescope and the microscope of creation, and then we're going to look inside of you at the knowledge that God has placed within you in your conscience, the knowledge of him, the knowledge of right and wrong. Those are the things that I would say if I were talking. There is rational evidence. Carl Sagan, former American agnostic astronomer, author, when questioned about God, he usually gave a condescending-like answer. He would say, well, I'm not saying that I know there's no God. It's just that if there is, there isn't any evidence of it. I just think that's absolutely false. There is lots of evidence. If someone wants irrefutable proof for the existence of God, they won't find it. But if someone's looking for evidence, they can see it. And it is quite obvious. Now, the first person I ever read besides scripture in this is a philosopher by the name of Alvin Plantinga. And he believes that there's no proofs of God that will uh, convince all rational persons but there are at least two to three dozen, and he started listing them, right? Most readers who take time to walk through Plantiga's work, you, you say some are more convincing than the others, but I, I wanna give you the two most compelling, really four, right? One external about creation, one internal about your conscience. We're gonna do it through Romans, all right? Let me let Romans be the back, back, backdrop and the backbone of what we talk about. Go to Romans chapter one. Romans chapter 1, these two things of creation and conscience are found here. I'm not going to spend a bunch of time in Scripture because I want to give you something to talk about that's outside of Scripture because that's kind of the, what most people require from this kind of question, but it's here. It's in Scripture. Let's start in verse 18 of chapter 1. Here within this passage, Paul reveals some ways about how God has made himself known, and he says, we've suppressed all those ways. Right? He talks about God's anger because every time he provides something, we stuff it down. Look at verse 18. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who stop. I would think that would be enough, right? The wrath of God against godliness, ungodliness, and unrighteousness. But that's not where his wrath comes from. He says the ungodliness and unrighteousness comes because men suppress the truth. Look at the end of verse 18. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This idea here, picture a volleyball or a beach ball in a pool, and you're trying to take that beach ball and put it under the water. You might be able to do it, but it's hard. And it wants to come back up. This is the idea of suppress. It wants to come back up, but people push it down. Okay, so 
Where is the responsibility of that? Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So why is the truth being suppressed? Because that which is known about God is clear within them, conscience, and God made it evident to them in creation. They bury the truth of God, and it is the phenomenon that we see in all creation. All humans bury that. They do it at some level. Verse 20. Here's the responsibility. The responsibility factor is for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that's his person, his eternal power, person in power, his divine nature have been clearly seen. In other words, it's conspicuous. God's put his fingerprint over everything. It's conspicuous, clearly seen, being understood through that what has been made. This is one, what, four words to describe one Greek word, poema. We get the word poem from this, the idea of purpose and, and a masterpiece. God has provided a masterpiece. It's been clearly seen being understood through what has been made in order and in beauty so that they are without excuse, all of humanity. Greek word anapologia, without an apology. There's no appeal. We are all without excuse There's no basis for an apology. Verse 21, this responsibility leads to a refusal by humanity. They refuse. Notice the downward spiral. For even though they knew God, everyone has a knowledge of God. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him. They did not glorify him as God or give thanks. That is a give thanks. That is the greatest spiritual indicator. Are you grateful? Do you have thanks in your heart for what God's done and is doing? Those that don't give thanks to God, that's a great indicator of where they're at with him. But they became futile in their speculations. Their their reasoning became flawed. They had non-God thoughts. They took God out of the equation and they tried to think through everything without God. Now, what did that bring them? Their foolish heart was darkened. When you take God and you think all non-God thoughts, all is threatening. So they, they will come up with answers that do not challenge them morally. That's what humanity does. They come up with answers that does not challenge them morally. This assessment is grim and radically different from what we hear in universities and in the media. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. <laughs> they say they're wise and The word here for fools is the word moros. We get the word moron. And it's not the idea that you're unintelligent. It's that you're not giving yourself to wisdom. You look at wisdom and you say, eh, I don't want to believe that. I want to believe this crazy thought. And exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of a corruptible man. In other words, we worship men and we worship things and we give our lives to houses and we give our lives to careers and we work ourselves into a grave and we call it a good life. And that is not the purpose of humans and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Verse 24, therefore, what did God do because of that downward spiral of the suppression of truth that led to the depravity of the mind, which led to all this? He gave them over to it. God says, my will be done. Humanity looks back like a three-year-old and says, no, my will be done. And what does God do? He says, okay, 
You want the remedial school? I'll give it to you. You will sow and you will reap. You want your will to be done? I will let the thing you were so hungry for. How many of you have that in your story where the very thing that you were so hungry for became your greatest tutor of what shouldn't have been, of what, what a poor, unwise person you are without the wisdom of God? God lets the thing you want become your tutor. Therefore, God gave them over. He's gonna say this three times. It's the idea of judgment. He gave them over in judgment to the lusts of their heart to impurity. The thing you want made you unclean, dirty, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, number two, God gave them over to degrading passions. Do you see the spiral? Impurity, then left to itself. If you give yourselves to dirty things, the law of diminishing return says they will not satisfy you long and you need more of that thing. And so degrading passions, verse 26. For their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also men abandon the natural function of the woman and burn in their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of error. This text is saying that in the spiral down refusal of humanity to call to God that it first starts with impurity and then it goes to a level of degrading passions and homosexuality is part of that judgment. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, the third thing he gave them over to is a depraved mind. To do those things which are not proper. Their, their thinking became stinking. Their minds got darkened being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, like a staccato shot of a gun. This is what they've done. And although they know the ordinance of God, they, those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but they <laughs> applaud those who practice them. The very perversion gets applauded. I don't, I don't have to preach that. That's what we see, right? But what I want you to highlight here in your mind is that Paul speaks to a couple things that testify to the existence of God. One is creation, the external testimony of creation. The beginning of these verses, verse 20, Paul tells us that men can see the evidence of God by what has been made. I don't have to tell you that the Bible assumes the existence of God. I'm not trying to, to prove that the Bible believes he has existence. I'm trying to show you what the Bible points to in terms of proof. So we're going to do today. So if I'm talking to my 10-year-old, I would say creation proves it because creation says that there is a beginner and there is a designer. A beginner and a designer. All right, so here you have a scientific experiment of equal and opposite reactions. We see it, there's a law, but who started it? I did. I'm the one who pulled the ball back and got it going. That's what you assume in Romans, is that there is a beginner. We see this in Genesis. Go to Genesis 1. We see the assumption here of everything that science requires for there to be creative acts. You see it here, verse 1, chapter 1 of Genesis. In the beginning, God created. 
Bereshith in the beginning, bara, created. He chooses a word here. Bara is the idea of creating out of nothing. In Latin, we say created ex nihilo, without any other prior existing materials. He created the heavens and the earth. How did he do it? Verse 2. The earth was formless and void. There's, there's space. And darkness was over the surface of the deep. There's watery materials. There's mass. So you have a prime mover. Physics requires that. Someone to start it. You have space. You have mass. He created. He is the energy source. And then it says, the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Right? This is a phrase used of an eagle hovering over a nest. Here is the one tending to it. There's a funny story that goes with this. It's the idea of a scientist going toe-to-toe with God. And the scientist says, I can in my beaker, in my test tube, in my lab, under controlled circumstances, I can create out of nothing. And God says, okay, let's do it. And, God, and the scientist says to you first. And so God takes of the dirt and he blows into it life and creates a man immediately without any time, quick as he can, quick as he need, through a word and through a breath. And he says, okay, scientist, your turn. And the joke is the scientist goes down to grab dirt and he says, God says, uh-uh-uh, make your own dirt. <laughs> God created the dirt. He created everything. And creation points to that case. So on one website I visited this last week on evolution and the scientific answer to this, it says this about how life began. Speaking in general terms, quote, life can only have come from one of two possible places. Spontaneous creation, random chemical processes created the first living cell, randomness, or supernatural creation. God or some other supernatural power created the first living cell. And then the article goes on to say that it was spontaneous creation. Now, you tell me, which is a greater leap of faith? That randomly poof things came into existence or that there was a creator behind it? All right? Sometimes this is called the argument from cause or the cosmological argument. There, why is there something rather than nothing? This answer to this question, even among scientists, is universally now known as the Big Bang Theory, that it all had a beginning. If it has a beginning, it has a beginner. Stephen Hawking, a British theoretical physicist, cosmologist, author wrote this. He said, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning. Francis Collins, a, a skeptic turned believer, a major skeptic, prominent skeptic turned believer said, quote, we have this very solid conclusion that the universe had an origin, the Big Bang. 15 billion years ago, the universe began with an unimaginably bright flash of light and energy from an infinitesimally small point. That implies that before that, there was nothing. I can't imagine, he says, how nature, in this case the universe, could have created itself. And the very fact that the universe had a beginning implies that someone was able to begin it. And it seems to me that that someone is someone outside of nature. So the universe had a beginning, therefore it had a beginner. Christianity would say that that beginner is the eternal God. Right? So a worldview that holds to a belief in God would say that that uncreated, uncaused being was God. 
A worldview that wants to discount God would say that some sort of random force that spontaneously occurred created time and space and everything we see. Now, both those views require faith because there is no lab that you can prove that in. But the eternal evidence of creation is that if it had a beginning, then it must have someone who got it going. Okay, number two, it has a beginner and it has a designer. There's a blank in your handout. Now we've moved from first cause to something getting it going to something that has somewhere, somehow there's design and purpose. The Bible says, we talked about this last week, that God designed everything for a purpose. If you look at Genesis chapter 1, you see this. He created light and separated light from darkness, Genesis 1-4. He separated the waters from the waters and he created atmosphere for a reason. He gathered land together in the midst of the water. He put vegetation on it, created vegetation so that when he created animals, they could eat the vegetation. He creates man and woman. And he says, I created them in my image to do certain things. Creation and purpose, creation and purpose. A beginner and a designer. Now perhaps you have yet to believe the Bible. We'll talk about that on week six, all right? But let, let, me, let me talk about this argument from design just a little bit further, okay? Here's how it's stated. The teleological or design argument says this. The universe evidences great complexity in design. Thus, it has been designed by a designer. Collins, I quoted him earlier, he says this in his book. He says, when you look from the perspective of the scientist at the universe... It looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants, he says. Gravitational constant, various constants about strong and weak nuclear forces that have precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, in some cases even in a million million, the universe as we know it would not have actually come to existence. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxies, no stars, no planets, no people. Many in the scientific community are talking about an obvious fine-tuning of the universe. Scientists have identified, he said 15 constants, but scientists have identified 75 different finely-tuned aspects of the universe. Here's four. Let me give you four. Ready? Just listen to these. If the earth were off one degree in relation to the sun, if we're off one degree closer to the sun, we'd fry. If we were off one degree farther from the sun, we'd freeze. One degree. Now, is that a margin of error? (laughs) It's not much. Number two, if the moon were any closer or any larger than it was, than it is, the tides would destroy the coastlines. If the moon were any farther away or any smaller than it is, the oceans would die from lack of nutrient movement. Number two. Number three, if our distance from Jupiter, I saw this at the museum yesterday, if our distance from Jupiter were any greater, asteroids and and comets would pepper the earth and we'd go into an ice age quickly. If Jupiter were any closer to the earth, our orbit would get pulled out of that one degree stability. All right, number four. If the surface gravity that we have right now were any stronger, Earth would, would not be able to retain ammonia and methane. If it were any weaker, the Earth's atmosphere would lose too much water. And I could keep going on and on. 
Simply put, the argument of design exposes the foolishness of answering the question, who made the cosmos, with the answer, no one. It just happened. That's foolish. Take the wristwatch that's on your wrist or take the words of Shakespeare. Scientists want us to believe that it is technically possible, given enough time and opportunity, that a watch could come from a tornado hitting a scrapyard, given enough time. Or they want us to believe that, according to Shakespeare's words, that it's technically possible that a group of monkeys hitting keys at random on a typewriter keyboard, given an infinite amount of time, they could come up with all the works of Shakespeare. Even though those things we might even say are technically possible if you had an infinite amount of time, they are absolutely improbable. They are beyond probability. Okay? So, so let, let, me, let me say this. Let me give you one more word maybe to write down. If you're a nerd like me, I'll tell you one of the f- most fascinating things I've ever read is material on, write this down, irreducible complexity. I don't have time to talk about that here, but let me just explain it. Irreducible complexity is not only is the universe complex, it is irreducibly complex. In Michael Behe's book written in the 1990s or mid-90s, he, he wrote about this, and I've often thought about it. I was walking through the museum thinking about this, that like a mousetrap, you have five parts to a mousetrap. The mousetrap has a plate, a spring, a lever, another lever, a, a, a trigger, it has cheese, and that's the only way it traps mice. And if you take one of those parts away, it doesn't work. If you take one of the parts of this watch away, there's many parts in here that are irreducibly complex. They make everything else work. And there is no evolutionary process that could get you to that irreducible complexity. Another great example is the woodpecker. We saw a woodpecker yesterday. It was an animatronic woodpecker at the the museum. A woodpecker has a beak strong enough to hit the tree. It has a tongue strong enough to loop into the tree to get the insects. It has an extra cavity that no other bird has to wrap up that long tongue. It has an extra eyelid that when that woodpecker hits the tree going that fast, the eyelid shuts and keeps his eyeballs from going boop. And if one of those, what did I mention, four things? If one of those things were missing, that woodpecker could not do anything to create some sort of, of uh, survival of the fittest opportunities. It is a irreducibly complex woodpecker. And that is one of hundreds that I could probably name just over the years of study. So let's move on to talk about uh, design through the microscope. We've talked about the telescope. What about the microscope? Created world in space as well as the smallest detail supports the idea of a divine designer. Listen to this. The human brain we know under microscope is more complex than any computer ever created. It processes more than a million messages a second. The human eye can distinguish between seven million colors. It has automatic focusing and can handle an astounding 1.5 million messages simultaneously together at the same time. Every cell in your body has a detailed instruction code similar to computer programming about how it should act and what it should do. We call that DNA. Every minute you've sat here in this room, every minute 50 million cells in your body have died. Every minute 50 million cells and they've been replaced. 
Your heart can beat three billion times in your lifetime. A single yeast cell has the same number of components as a Boeing 747, a single yeast cell. So we go to the cosmos or we go to the cell, and when you look under a microscope, it has the same number of components as a Boeing 747. In response to the complexity of creation under the microscope, Sir Frederick Hoyle said on the screen, the universe arising from nothing is like a tornado sweeping through a junkyard and forming a 747. Question, would you fly in it if it did? You know, some of you are like, I'm not all into that science stuff. And so you're kind of losing me here. Well, just look at these. Look at the world around you. Look at these pictures. Look at the beauty of the created world. Look at the night sky. Look at the reflection of the sun off of water. Look at the colors of the fall that are going to be all around us in the next couple of months. They speak of the presence of a designer who is a master with his masterpiece. Listen to these Bible verses as more pictures go on the screen. I'll read one Revelation, Romans 1.20 again. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So that we, all humanity, is without excuse. Psalm 19, verse 1 and 2, the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens and the earth declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day by day by day by day, they call and pour forth speech. They speak. Night after night, they display knowledge. Is there a God? Absolutely, there's a God. Creation shows evidence of design, therefore there's a divine, intelligent designer. Now let's go to the conscience. In the last 10 minutes of this morning, I want to look at the internal testimony of your conscience. How does the fact that we have a conscience say that there's a God? Well, go back to Romans. Go back to Romans. We already read this verse, but verse 28. Chapter 1, verse 28. Let's pick it apart. Mankind has a knowledge of God. We've seen it in this. They had knowledge of God. So they knew God, but they didn't worship him. Verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, what does that assume? That they knew God. All of humanity knows that there's a God, but they, what do they do? They suppress that truth. They don't want to be morally accountable. And so their conscience makes them, pushes them to deny the existence of God. Just as they did not see fit. The Greek word here is dokamats, which means to prove worthy by testing. They did not see fit. They did not prove worthy by testing. They tested it and they, oh, I'm accountable. I don't want that God. I want to make a designer God that's okay with what I do. They did not see fit. How does it go on? Verse 28, to acknowledge God. In Greek, this word is often translated retain. They did not see fit to retain God in their thinking. If I don't have to think about God, I don't have to do what he tells me. It's like a child who says, if I don't see mom and dad, I'm not accountable to mom and dad. Any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Their mind 
became depraved. The Greek word here at the root of this word is the word soter, which means salvation. In other words, their mind was without salvation. We call this the fall of the Garden of Eden. It's, it is a rare thing now for someone to have a hunger for God and his revelation. They don't want to hear from God because if they hear from God, they're what? Accountable. To do those things which are not proper. Now it becomes not proper. They love darkness and they flee from the light. That's Romans 1, 28. You know, we, we read Romans 1, 21 through 23, and the point is that even the fact that we think about God says there's a God. We would not come up with it left to ourselves. Man would not come up with the thought of God. We don't do that. We don't. It's so much easier. Life is so much easier in regards to the life that we live in this world to live without the belief in that there is God watching over us. I mean, we could do whatever we want if we didn't have a God and his con the conscience that he placed within us hindering us. We could pursue personal pleasure at our highest priority. We could push our pleasure, push our position, push our prestige. We could lift ourselves up and we'd have no restraint. But why don't we see that? Why is the human conscience so active, so alive? I believe it's because God placed it there. It's deep within us. Even though it doesn't fit with God's, more, the, the fact that he's over us and we, we in a depraved heart, we don't want him judging us. He makes us and then we say, we don't want you. It's crazy. God says, I made you in my image and we return the favor. We make him in our image and we say, you, you're, you're okay with everything we do. And our conscience gets seared and seared and seared. Let me move on to the last point. We have a knowledge of God in your conscience. Mankind has a knowledge of God. It's universal across the planet. It's universal across the ages. Mankind believes in God. 80% of America says they do. It's the default. Then they spend the rest of their life suppressing it. But here's the other truth. Your conscience, and this is maybe more of what you thought of when you thought of conscience. Your conscience gives you a knowledge of right and wrong. This gives evidence that there's a God. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. Romans chapter 2, verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, is law, look down at your Bible. Is law capitalized? Yes? Are y'all tracking with me? Am I losing you? All right. Law is capitalized. What is that referring to? It's referring to the Old Testament. It's referring to the Mosaic law. God gives in the Mosaic law what he expects. And when a Gentile does the very thing that the law demanded, they've never read it. That testifies that it comes from God. Not having the law, they are a law, lowercase law, to themselves. And that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. What do we call that? It's conscience. Their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. I could go on and on. I, I could walk into any society in the world, any society in the world, kill someone, and I would be accountable for that. I would be, um, I would have consequences to my actions. I could walk into any culture in the world, build relationships, and then start lying through my teeth, and I would be held accountable. I would have consequences to those. Why? Because killing someone and lying are universal moral truths that God has placed on our heart. Now, I'm, 
I know there's societies in the world that lift up lying in some way, shape, or form. But you show me the worst society that holds to bribery or any of this kind of thing as part of their culture, and I guarantee you can, you can boil it down, you can desiccate it down to the very bottom fluid, and in relationships there is honor, and there is loyalty, and there is truth. You don't have relationships without truth, and you don't have relationships without honoring each other in protection, right, and keeping each other alive. Here's the point. Rejection of God begins to pervert our conscience, and these are the things that begin to be allowed. These, even in light of the fact that some people do all sorts of horrible, heinous things that your conscience would never allow you to think, shows that their depravity had a starting point. They started in a certain area and it got there because there is this universal conscience that's there. This is called the moral law argument or the axiological argument of God's existence. That you have fingerprinted on your soul this code of conduct. All human beings have moral feelings we call conscious. Now, if I'm talking to my daughter, right, I would go from point one, creation. I would go from the telescope to the microscope. And if I'm talking to anybody, I'm going to go and I'm going to talk about, I'm going to talk about laws, logic, and love. Say that with me. Laws, logic, and love. Where do they come from? Where does this universal code of law, logic, and love, that it is right and wrong to do this in society, in this law. Granted, we degrade. It, it, it doesn't evolve, it devolves. We're seeing our laws in America devolve. But regardless, the law started there in purity. Right and wrong in law. Right and wrong in thinking. This is right thinking. This is wrong thinking. We call that logic. That doesn't follow. You can't have that conclusion. It doesn't make sense. Where does that come from? Across the planet. It comes from God putting his moral stamp on you. Listen to sociologist Christian Smith. He puts it like this. Moral is an orientation towards understanding what is right and wrong, just and unjust, that are not established by our own actual desires or preferences, but instead are believed to exist apart from them, providing standards by which our desires and preferences can themselves be judged. So law, logic, love, love. Why most evolutionary sociologists claim that morality and love are simply behaviors conditioned in us over time, scripture and your own life and your own understanding of love is there's a universal object of what it means to do right by somebody else that you love. You serve them, you treat them right, you speak kindly to them, you communicate with them, you spend time with them. All those elements of love are universally stamped on the human heart by God. All right, you get the point. Where does all law, logic, and love come from? They come from God. They come from God. So, we have proved the existence of God? No. We've given evidence. We've demonstrated that God has left us clues. We haven't proved the existence of God. And one of the things I've been praying for you all week is if you've been brought here by somebody who really wants you to see God for who he is and to have a relationship with God, that God would go beyond these proofs of creation and conscience and he would introduce himself to you. I was a freshman at University of North Texas, and I was agnostic at best, and God met me. 
He sought me. He wasn't lost. I was lost. I didn't find God. God found me. And I pray that you have that experience today, that he would find you willing and wanting him. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. What does that assume? That you're going to taste and see. You're going to seek him. So here's my, here's my encouragement. Even if we haven't come to the conclusion that you're wanting today, maybe this hasn't brought you any closer, but I would tell you, keep seeking, don't give up, keep looking, keep studying, keep asking the right questions because the Bible promises those who seek him will find him. He doesn't want to be lost. He's not lost. He's right in front of you. Listen to this. Robert Jastrow from a book called God and the Astronomers says, for the scientist who has lived by his faith and the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountain of his ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself, the scientist pulls himself over the final rock. He is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Have you climbed a mountain recently? I climbed a mountain last summer and just even, even with Mount Everest. I didn't climb it. We took a plane. But I did a lot of research in, in April when we went to Nepal. And they have these little things called stone men, these rocks that they've stacked on top of each other, sometimes called karen. And they stack them up and they tell you that this is the right route to go. If you've seen the movie Everest, there's some of those sightings of those stone men. And these are those stone men. You're creation before you, both in telescope and microscope, your conscience before you, both in the knowledge of God and the knowledge of good and evil, and these point you in the right direction. Hebrews eleven six. without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. He will reward you if you seek him. So I encourage you to see it this way. This is the first step of belief. What is Proverbs 14, one said? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Again, according to the Bible, a fool isn't unintelligent. A fool is simply one who refuses to listen to wisdom. I encourage you, if you're here today, listen to wisdom. There are proofs of God's existence. Irrefutable, no, but they are obvious and they are clear. For the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So seek him. I started doing that. I started seeking him in my 17th year of life. And I read Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. And I was like, man, Christianity has so much proof to it. I sat, time, sat in classes like biochemistry and physics, and I said, God, your handprint is written all over it. It didn't lower my faith. It increased it. There is so much intelligence in how God has set up the universe. There was a prominent agnostic by the name of Huxley, T.H. Uh, Huxley. He spent time uh, with a band of, of friends, and they were out one week, and uh, it was a Sunday, and so some were getting ready. Many were Christians. They were getting ready to go to the service, and he, he's not a believer, doesn't buy into all that, but he, he pulled one of them aside. He said, hey, instead of going to the church service, can you spend time with me? And in the story, Huxley's own words, he asked him, he said, I, I don't want you to talk to me about this or that. I just want you to tell me what Christ means to you. I'd love to hear that. Y'all are so crazy about him. I want to hear. 
And this man that spent that one Sunday with this agnostic went on and on about Christ, meant him what he'd done in his life, the, the, the connection that he had with him, the intimacy, the, the work of God in his life, what God had taught him, what God had done, and it went on and on. And at the end, Huxley had tears in his eyes. And he said, oh, that I would have that level of faith, but I can't get there. You know, within this church are people, many people who have been connected to Christ for many years. They know him. They have a relationship with God. And those of you that are willing to share that story, this is God's purpose in your life, to share that story. You don't have to be an expert witness. You just have to be a witness. Tell people. The agnostics that I've been able to reach for Christ, I didn't reach them through my cosmological, teleological, ontological proofs of God's existence. I reached them by telling what Jesus had done in my life. Because I'm an expert on that. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I was an alcoholic, and now I'm free from that. I was perverted, and now I'm pure. I had relationships that were messed up, and now my relationships make sense. And there is no other stone man on the mountain of my life that I can point to that's greater than that. And I'd love to tell you about it after this service if you want to talk with me. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, what power there is in the word, in the scripture, what power there is beyond it, even in the cosmos and to the test tube, to the microscope and the telescope. Lord, Psalm 145 verse 18 says, The Lord is near all to those who call on him and to all who call on him in truth. And we've tried to do that today. We've tried to call on you in truth. Your word says, if you seek him, you will, you, will draw, you will draw near to us. And so we want to seek you. Lord, if we're honest with ourselves about why we live the way we do, we would acknowledge that deep down in our hearts, we know that there's a God or that there must be a God. And so we're here wanting to be accountable, wanting to see in you all that you've done, who you are. And Lord, we see it in the grand romantic gesture of what Jesus did on the cross that he died a death we, sh- we should have died. He lived a life. Having lived a life we should have lived, he died a death we should have died. And that is a grand romantic gesture. We didn't come to you, you came to us. And like T.H. Huxley of the 19th century, we would give our right hand to have this kind of intimacy that others have with you. We want more of you. Lord, we would give anything if you would erase our doubts and replace it with faith, but that doesn't always happen. Psalm 34, verse 8 says, Taste and see that you are good, and blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So, Lord, you invite us to taste you, to see that you're good. You invite us to come to you and drink the water of life. So we, when we drink that, we'll never be thirsty again, your Bible says. Lord, you do exist. You are real, and you want us to come to know you. So may we be drinkers, frequent drinkers at the well of your person and your power. In Jesus' name, amen.